You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In their new documentary, Secrecy, our guests today, co-directors Peter Gallison and Rob Moss, explore the vast, invisible world of government secrecy. Moss is the past board chair and president of the Association of Independent Video and Filmmakers and has taught filmmaking at Harvard University for the past 20 years. Gallison is Pellegrino University Professor of the History of Science and of Physics at Harvard. Secrecy begins screening at the Lemley Music Hall on Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills beginning this Friday, October 17th. Peter Gallison and Rob Moss, welcome to Film School. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's terrific to be here. Very nice to have you on. Uh, now, are, are you at Harvard right now? Yes, both of us are. Very good. Uh, how, is it, uh, how is it there today? A good day? It's a gorgeous fall day here. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Now, are you one any... of our six we get before it starts. <laughs> 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 just one of six. Are you in the number five right now? Or... <laughs> that's right. Yeah, okay. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Now, is this uh, near the studio that you made this film? Or is that on campus? We did. We uh, we ended up filming on a soundstage here on campus, although we use uh, archival footage and artworks um, from a great number of places, but the basic filming took place here. Okay. Now, on the, on the archival stuff, how did that uh, come about? Did you uh, have access to it at the university, or did you have to look in a lot of different places for it? And was it difficult to find? I mean, archival, the, the, the search for archival material is um, difficult in that it's hard to find the right thing. It's not difficult, in, if I understand your question, that it's um, kept from view or it's yeah. it in itself as a kind of secret. And often we're using the archival material in, a, in an expressive way as well as an illustrative way. And I think the, the, the challenge is to find archival footage that works, in, works for the material, doesn't just simply describe what somebody's saying. Um, it, if I see too much archival footage of a certain sort, I want to shoot myself, and uh-huh. we hope to make a film in which we wanted to, to actually watch over and over again. Okay. Well, what kind would that be where you pull out the uh, gun and cock the trigger? What, what's, what well, are you talking about Somebody there? says, you know, um, uh, and, you know, this is the story of a tree, and then you see a tree, and, uh-huh. you know, it's the story oh, of, I gotcha. uh, uh, you know, like that. So Just literal you, translations of everything right. going on in the narrative, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that was appealed to us about this very unvisual topic of secrecy was to try to get at the fact that everybody, whether they're working within the system of national security secrecy or critics of it uh, or people caught up inadvertently in it, are always, there's a fascination to secrecy that seems to always be taking us beyond purely the literal. Uh-huh. Yes. Now the reason reason I brought up the uh, the studio right off the bat is because there is a story behind why you shot the the film in the studio. I I think could you talk a little bit about that? You you did one your very first interview outdoors, and then what happened when you looked at the uh, the footage? We did. We 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 shot it in a rather conventional way. We went um, you know got up in the early in the morning, and we rented equipment, and we we flew to Washington, and we drove to the Maryland shore, and we interviewed a very interesting guy. Uh, in his home. But on the way back from this interview, you know, there was, um, we just kind of like were were struck by how um, the interview itself, the the sound of the birds outside, 
um, the man's wife very nicely coming in and asking us if we wanted lunch, the, the, the particular set of books he had in his library. All these things didn't add up to anything that we were interested in in terms of how, what it is to be in this world of government secrecy. And that we tried to take the idea that there's nothing to film, that it's one of the world's worst filmic ideas is to make a film about government secrecy because nobody wants to talk to you. you there's nothing to shoot. Um, it's all about pieces of paper, and those pieces of paper are redacted. So we thought maybe we could use that to our advantage by inventing a, a visual scheme for the film. And that meant, in our minds, we hatched the scheme on the ride back to the airport from that first shoot that... Maybe we could use um, rear projections. Maybe we could make it rather enclosed and expressive shooting space where people could all be in their own world um, and that the, the world of government secrecy would somehow be embedded in this visual scheme. And we tried to you know, add to that animation and add to that a, 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 a musical score that would help evoke a world that nobody can ever see. Now, now the score is done by... I, I, I... I'm blanking out on the fellow's name right now. John Kuziak. Uh huh. Yeah, and he's done work for uh, on the Fog of War. He has that kind of secrecy uh, uh, motif going in his work. Anyway, uh, is is he live in the area? He does. He uh, lives here in Cambridge. And one of the things that was different about the way we did this from most documentary films is is that we began editing and working with John Kuziak. Our editor was Child King and, and, and working with him and with uh, John Kuziak and uh, the, our animator, Ruth, Ruth Lingford, uh, from the very beginning. So as we developed the film, we were constantly working on the material. And instead of starting with a script in which we knew all the answers and we were simply trying to look for sound bites that would fill in this or that hole in the argument, we started with a single interview, edited it with music, with um, animation and all, all the elements that we eventually wanted, including artworks, and then looked at what we needed next. What did the material, where did it go? Who opposed this? What was the exact opposite of that position? Or what was an even more extreme version of a position? And so we, we worked more in a spiral out from the center rather than from a script where we thought we had all the answers, because we knew we didn't. We couldn't write a... This wasn't going to be a history of secrecy from Babylonian signet rings to NSA satellites. It was going to be something that would evoke a world that's inaccessible to us, but which we spend tens of billions of dollars on, and which involve between two and three million people working under conditions of classification in the United States now. Now, if I may ask, who was the first person that you built around, the very first edit that you took? Um, we uh, first interviewed Steve Aftergood, who okay. uh, uh, works for the Federation of American Scientists. Uh, did you pick him intentionally, knowing that you know you thought he'd be a good place to start, or did he? Just... Well, he was he was uh, partly because um, he has a newsletter and he's a rather public figure as it comes to secrecy, issues of secrecy. And we went to Washington, we met him, we liked him very much. He's incredibly knowledgeable, and he's devoted a good part of his grown-up life to working on these issues. And he seemed like a you know a likely place to start. You have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. Now, where where did the idea of uh, the film originate? Who between the two of you, Rob and Peter, who was the one who said, you know, we we really should do a film on this on this issue or on this subject? Well, um, Rob and I had been. Uh, I made a film. My previous film to this was about the moral political debate over the hydrogen bomb, and my work in the history of physics involves a great deal of 
material that is formerly classified. And so I'd sort of been in and out of the world of Los Alamos and Livermore for many years. And in the course of teaching a course with Rob about film and science or filming science, um, I, it seemed to me that it might be interesting, since I'd been writing on the way secrecy functions, to try to, to, to do this. And you know, Rob's first answer, of course, was, how could you possibly make a film about something where there's nothing to look at, and which is a perfectly valid <laughs> question. And so we, but we then became, we just became fascinated with the idea of trying to use all of the resources of film, of documentary film, you know, not, not only sort of analytic arguments, but also people's associations and thoughts and this artworks and animation to try to get at something that was hidden from view. So to make something that had a deep political sense, but also involved something much more personal, much, much more elusive. I should also say that there was something about, I mean, in some ways the film idea started with a, a desire that we had to work with each other. And, um, and when Peter had mentioned that we've taught this class before, but teaching a class with somebody is not obviously easy to do. It's a very, it's a, classrooms are very intimate spaces, very complicated, negotiating all kinds of partially formed ideas. Um, and it turns out, and I didn't really think about this ahead of time, but editing rooms are also about negotiating partially formed ideas. And the fact that we'd enjoyed and seemed to uh, work well with each other in the classroom made it seem possible that we could work well with each other in the making of the film, and that, that turned out to be so. A lot of times people say to us, you know, are you, are you still speaking to your collaborator? Because I just finished a film and went on on speaking terms. <laughs> Rob, Rob and I, having had a couple of years of sort of arguing things out in the classroom and listening to very different perspectives on similar issues was, was, was really a good launch for that. So, yes, we are still speaking. <laughs> well, that's the other wonderful thing about this film is that there are many different perspectives on secrecy. This isn't just a... a, a, a I guess a propaganda film. This is not Michael Moore's take on secrecy. You you have both sides of the issues well represented. Uh, it, were you persuaded in any way by what you heard uh, as far as your view goes on secrecy? Well, I, I, a couple things to say about that. I mean, one of the things that I think we felt strongly about is I think the film can be read as a critique of this administration, but in, in most ways we're interested in something larger, which is the problem of secrecy in a democracy. Yeah. And um, it's, a, it's a big and tough issue to think about. Um, the arguments are persuasive on both sides. Um, it seemed that if we were going to come to our own idea, <clears throat> then that idea had to go through some of the difficult ideas that we were understanding as in the course of making the movie, and that we wanted to work forward through those ideas rather than backwards through um, some sort of previously held idea that we started with. And in a way, it's not so much of, um, at least for me, it's not that I kind of, now I know the answer to the problems of secrecy and democracy, but I have some insight, more insight than I had before about secrecy's relationship to power um, in particular and to executive power in, 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 in a particular way, in the way that the government works. And um, the ways in which secrecy protects us and the ways in which secrecy um, erodes the democracy. Yeah. I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Peter Gallison and Rob Moss. They are the directors, co-directors of a remarkable new documentary, Secrecy. I want to ask uh, that there, there are things, and I want to get into a little bit about the issue of secrecy, what in, in my take on it, watching the film. Um, I'm certainly someone who... who understands the need to keep the identities of our agents, our technology, 
uh, military secrets. I understand that the, the rationale for it. But so often, and, in, and you do get into this in the film, that so often these issues of secrecy uh, have to do with covering somebody, uh, covering some crime that's been committed in the name of our government, or uh, incompetence. incompetence, or in fact, shielding the only person in the equation uh, of a re- related to war or some other significant security issue in the United States. The American people are the only ones who don't know. And I, I, as an example, I'd go back to the war in, in Nicaragua and in, in El Salvador. Everyone who was there knew that there was a war going on, and the United States government knew there was a war going on. The only people that didn't know were the, United, were the American people. And uh, it is, it, for me, at the crux of this, of this issue. Well, I think that's it's exactly right. And, you know, one of the things that was really striking to us in making the film was that the people who, who were serious, the people who were really responsible within some of the national security um, agencies within the government, the CIA and the National Security Agency, among others, are very concerned that overclassification can actually erode respect for the things that genuinely should be secret. I mean, one of the senior people who's responsible for nuclear secrecy, the biggest secrets of all, really, lie in the problems of nuclear weapons. And one of the things that he said to us was, you know, if we classify everything, then people think that the trivial things show that secrecy is not real, and it endangers the things that are genuinely important. And we heard that over and over again. People say, and some of them say in the film, you know, you, you can't cover up Abu Ghraib. That's not a secret. That's a crime. Yeah. And to classify that makes people think that there's never any secrets. And so, you know, revealing Valerie Plame's name was terrible. She was working in nuclear counterterrorism. That's yeah. not the sort of thing that should be revealed. That means that anyone that ever had contact with her is now compromised. So I think that there, one of the things that we came to see over the course of the film is in this vast amount of material that gets classified, a huge fraction of it shouldn't be. And if it was not classified, the genuine secrets would be better off. Yeah. Well, yeah, a few w- weeks ago, we had Barry Siegel on. To, he's written a book called A Case of Privilege about the Reynolds case, yes. in which you cover in the film, and essentially is the the Supreme Court's imperature on the uh, on this idea of state secrets, going back to, uh, I think the ruling was in the 50s, if I'm not mistaken. 1953. 53, yeah. and it essentially allowed, the, it, it codified the idea that the United States government has the power to essentially st- put a, a stamp of secrecy on anything and everything. Well, anything and everything that they think, if, re- if revealed in a court of law, would compromise national security. Right. Um, and, you know, in a way, that, that story, which is a central story in our film, um, was valuable, um, partly because I don't think the issue of whether the government should enjoy a state secrets privilege is exactly the issue here. It seems to me that the government probably should enjoy some privilege that if something goes to, to, to trial, that something could be revealed that could be damaging to national security. The problem in the Reynolds case, and the problem with secrecy in general, this goes back to an earlier question, is the problem of oversight. That what happened in the Reynolds case is that <clears throat> what was set up was the, um, was the precondition, was that 
they didn't ask to see the material the government, the, the courts did not ask to see the material that the government was saying was a secret. Right. Simply claiming it was a secret was good enough for the courts. And that's the problem, that there's no oversight, that if the, there is a, um, <clears throat> a bill coming out next year in 2009, um, sponsored by Arlen Specter and um, uh, Ted Kennedy, assuming they live long enough to see this <clears throat> to its end, which would require if the government claims that something's a state secret in court, that they must show that material to judges and chambers to demonstrate that it is indeed a secret, that that would require them to do that. They would, the, the Congress would require the courts to do what the Supreme Court did not do in 1953. And the irony of this, this case had to do with a, with a plane crash, and we have found that the basis of this idea of state secrets was based on a, on a case in which it's obvious that the government was covering up negligence on their part. Which that's, that's right. They, was, they were trying to... They claimed that an accident report was involved very important national secrets. And when, practically 50 years later, it was revealed that the, the accident report was declassified and the people that the... Why widows and, and, and children of the, of, the, of, the, of the civilians who had been on that flight got to see it, there were no secrets. So here you had a law which has governed a big fraction of national security, you know, 600, 700 cases of national security, of really important national security issues, was founded on the idea that things were classified, that the judges never saw, and that they ceded authority on to the executive branch. And in some ways, that's the problem. You can't have the Congress, the press... And the courts ceding everything to the to the executive branch without threatening to unbalance the balance of powers that found our constitution. And we're seeing kind of the logical end of this this very powerful impulse on the part of the executive branch in the cases of Guantanamo and Al Masri and Hamdan. And you 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 put you you focus a lot on the case of. Hamdan versus Rumsfeld in this, which is, uh, w- let's talk about that a little bit. Well, first, I, I've got to say that uh, Charles Swift comes off as a real hero in this whole uh, film. I, I don't know if you <laughs> oh, yes. intended him to look that way, but he, but he certainly uh, uh, carries a thread through this film and uh, it gives you a, a, a real window into uh, what we need to do as citizens to, to uh, break through the, the uh, secrecy. He is a wonderful character, and he's a wonderful guy. And just Mm -hmm. as a window into the kind of vagaries of filmmaking, he was our very last interview. Uh, It's impossible to imagine making the film without him. Yet, until the very last minute, we thought we were. Um, But he's become sort of, as you say, a kind of everyman presence and a kind of moral center for the piece. Um, This is a guy who'd given his entire life to the military, um, who believed in the Constitution, who believed in the law, who was asked to defend um, this guy who drove around Osama bin Laden and was the first case that the government wanted to try in Guantanamo, um, who was just this kind of low-level guy who drove around. You know, nobody was really accusing him of doing anything terribly wrong. He wasn't a combatant, for example. This is Hamdan. This is Hamdan, that's Mm -hmm. right. And um, Swift, you know, is asked to plead him out. He's asked to... Um, what he's asked to do, really, what they say to him is, we want you to go to Guantanamo, and we want you to plead him out. And Swift says, to what charges am I pleading him to? And they said, we can't tell you that. <laughs> and then they said, he said, well, if he's convicted of these charges that he agrees that he's guilty to, even though he doesn't know what they are, what might happen to him? 
And they said, we can't tell you that. So, you know, he'd have to plead guilty to unspecified charges, and then they might kill him. I mean, he might be executed for his admission of guilt, but we couldn't tell him that either. And Swift just said, I'm not going to do that. I mean, they'd hoped that he would do that. On the one hand, they hoped that he would do that. On the other hand, Swift felt very strongly that there was a a group of people in the military who wanted him to litigate this case because they knew he would do a good job, that he would not back away from what it would mean. And what it ultimately meant is when he actually beat his boss, he beat the Secretary of Defense. Um, uh, He was passed over for promotion for a second time, which is tantamount to saying you have to resign, and he's no longer in the military. And And what a brilliant lawyer, too. I I just got the feeling that he was... What a shame for the military to lose someone like well, that. Well, and the other attorney whose name just escaped me. Neil Katyal. Yeah. And, and that this, this story, as, uh, as they tell it in the film, um, as they're literally getting ready to go the, the day of, uh, they're arguing before the United States Supreme Court um, on, the, on this case, and their realization, their understanding of the gravity of what they're arguing, which is really the essence of of our criminal justice system and the basis of criminal law since uh, the Magna Carta, which is habeas corpus and, and the rest of it. And uh, this is a lot of drama in, in tied up in this case. And uh, justifiably, unfortunately, uh, we seem to have come out on the right side, at least at this point we've come out on the right side of this. One thing that's one choice that we made in the film was to focus on a couple of these cases, the Reynolds case, this foundation of the state secrets privilege, the Hamdan case, which brought up these, these detentions in a kind of third kind of court that was neither civilian nor military, and then the Almazri case, which involves uh, extraordinary rendition and uh, all of the, the secrecy that, that surrounds that. Each of these is, was appealing to us because they, they marked not only important instances stories that got at something uh, that was significant in, it, in its own right, but also because they were legal precedents, they served as the foundation for a great number of other things. Mm-hmm. And so the, 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 one of the ways that we held together the complex story, of, we tried to hold together the complex story of secrecy over these last years is by focusing on cases that helped create this modern secrecy system and sustain it, and also raise these fundamental questions about the meaning of democracy and how do you have a democracy? How do people how do people vote? How do they decide? How do they judge the government? How do they balance between the different branches of government? As soon as if there's secrecy, if there's too much secrecy, secrecy. If I don't tell you something, you can't even have an opinion of it, let alone act on it. Mm-hmm. So it seems like you know secrecy and the idea of a citizenry that that is knowledgeable, that's involved, that can participate in things is very important. And all the while, under the dire threat that there, there are things that are genuinely secret. We don't want how to make nuclear weapons to appear on the web. That's not a good idea. The other fascinating thing I found that, about the film, too, is just how secrecy corrupts within the organization, and especially the way ours is set up right now, a hierarchical, it's... Uh, there's secrecy within uh, segments of the organization itself. I, I think it was Melissa Boyle-Mall who, who brought this out the most, where she was saying that in, in this type of information age, we need to share information, and yet in the structure that we have right now, uh, we're not sharing that information. And uh, I, there's one little, I, I've got to ask you, there's a quote that she said at one point in time. She's talking about her family, about secrecy, but it seemed to apply to, to everyone in, in the uh, CIA, in the organization she worked for. Betrayal in a relationship, uh, those things add up over time. 
and she was talking about her family, but I, I truly believe that whether you intend it or not, it speaks to the whole uh, organization. We certainly mean it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's um, it's a wonderful statement, and I yeah. think she's on, not unaware of that. I mean, I, I don't think I mean I don't think that's what she was actually saying, yeah. but I don't think she would disagree necessarily. On the other hand. Her argument is that there has to be more information sharing for people inside the national security intelligence community. Um, and, you know, Tom Blanton, for example, would say there has to be information sharing, but with the general public. Um, they both want to point to examples of why that was were so. They both agree that um, we've moved, you know, the whole idea of information control coming out of a sort of 19th century idea of how information is put into pe on paper and into files and that you keep things away and then Cold War control and our kind of um, the, the, the Cold War impulses to keep things away from this other nation have been supplanted by, you know, a whole different kind of idea of digital te technologies and um, threats. The threat environment is not, you know, national, it's transnational. and yeah. uh, People have to just know more. Uh, there has to be a lot more information sharing. The question is, you know, who gets to share this information? Yeah. And people have different ideas about this. I have just one last question because uh, uh, we're running desperately short on time here, but uh, and this is a subject that I would love to talk to you about for another hour about, but uh, you've run into the puzzle palace here. Have you, either one of you, had any sort of personal um, encounters with the, the national security state that uh, left you... Uh, Wondering about uh, your own your own uh, personal um, well being. Well being. No, <laughs> yeah. not well being. I don't mean they're being threatened, but I just mean. Well, Are well, you being surveyed? Yeah. Do oh. you think that this bringing a film out like this is has caused you will cause you any personal distress? Um, I don't think that it's going to be that there's going to be a retributive uh, response to the film. One of the things that we found in talking to people who had recently been in the various agencies was that they, they welcomed the chance to make the case for why they thought secrecy ought to be done the way, you know, either a better version of the way it's done now or yeah. to describe what its, the stakes are. I did have, at one point, <laughs> someone from the, the, the CIA called up and just said, how, you know, how's the film going? This is what we see, you know, on the web about what, you know, this is what people are saying about it and just wanted to check on things and how things were going. That was a little disquieting. But I, in general, you know, Melissa Maley, uh, who uh, was a former chief of station in Jerusalem and a counterintelligence uh, interrogator, uh, came to uh, Sundance and, you know, did some of the Q&A and, you know, wanted to participate in, and did participate very articulately to defend her views. So did Tom Blanton, who's an ardent critic of the system. So yeah. I think people... Um, or Jim Bruce likes to talk and to engage with off, uh, with critics as well as people who agree with him about the role of the press, and he's a long-standing and high-ranking member of the Central Intelligence Agency. So there is there are people, not everybody, but there are people within the military and the intelligence agencies who 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 think this is an issue that we need to address. Yeah. Well, it's a very even-handed film. And very well done. I, I highly recommend it. The film is Secrecy. The filmmakers we've been speaking with today are Peter Gallison and Rob Moss. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash film school.